seek to glorify you. Lord, if there's burdens on our heart, if there's frustrations, Father, if there's worry, Sunday school, we've been talking about anxiety. Father, if there's actual physical struggle and pain that we're, we're going through at the moment, Lord, would you help us through these things? And would you help calm our hearts as we approach your word this morning? Lord, would you use this time to build our hearts up? Would you strengthen us? Father, would you continue to lead and guide us in the way that we should go, Lord? And Father, we do pray for you to be glorified uh, in this time together today, Lord. Again, we're thankful and we love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we are back in the book of Nehemiah, and as I was kind of going through my, my records a little bit to see when the last time we were in the book of Nehemiah, as I've been preaching, it's been, a, it's been quite a while because every time I've preached here of late, I've been preaching something that I'm preaching at an upcoming conference or at a camp or something like that. So we literally have not been together in the book of Nehemiah since March. So we almost have to, let's start at the beginning again and let's get all caught up. No, we're not going to do that because we're well over halfway through. But I just want to um, dance over the high parts of this book really quickly. So uh, in broad terms, this book of Nehemiah is split into two halves. The first half of the book is talking about the works of God. What's going on? And as you get in, you discover that the work that is being done at that point is what? The rebuilding of the walls that surround God's chosen special city of his special people, the nation of Israel. It's rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem after the people are returning back to the land that God had promised them after they had been carried off into captivity and slavery because of their sin, because of their rebellion and uh, their uh, refusal to follow the Lord in all of his ways and follow his law and follow uh, the, the, uh, the law, which was in accordance to the promise that God had made through the covenant with them. And so we see the building of the wall, and the wall gets built, and we looked at all the things that they challenged. They, they faced criticism and attack and all sorts of things going on, and it's, it's a glorious thing to see how God rebuilt the wall of, uh, around Jerusalem at that time. Now we're in the second part of the book, and the, this part of the book is really focusing on the people of God. We're not so much concerned about rebuilding the wall. The wall's there. But you know, the wall a catalyst to get to the heart of what God really wanted. He didn't just want to rebuild a wall. Yes, that was important because it, 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 it's symbolic and it showed uh, a visible, tangible representation of his special covenant relationship with the nation of Israel. But in all times of history, and particularly in this time of, of biblical history with the nation of Israel, God wasn't as much concerned with rebuilding the wall as God was concerned with rebuilding the hearts of his people. God wanted the hearts of his people. So he, uh, the chapter 8 and beyond, we see um, the rebuilding of, of all of that. And in fact, something I came across here uh, recently, I, I was looking at uh, something called the Complete Jewish Study Bible, just as a reference material. 
and it had something really good to say in the introduction of the book of Nehemiah. They say, the author's purpose in the book of Nehemiah here is to encourage the new nation to trust and obey God in their new political and spiritual setting, which differs from both the pre-exilic period, that basically before they were sent into slavery, and now that they've returned back from slavery. And I like that it brings it out that, you know, God is concerned about rebuilding the people. And if you think about it with me from their perspective, the nation of Israel, when they were founded, they were founded and brought out in the wilderness from, they were in slavery, weren't they? But were they really a nation when they were in slavery under uh, Egypt? Well, they had the promise that God was going to make of them a nation. And they had the, problem, the promise of Abraham, which was passed on to Isaac, and then went down to Jacob or Israel. They had the promise that that would happen. But they hadn't seen any of that. And they were just, they were just a band of people, a Hebrew, uh, a band of Hebrews. You could loosely refer to it as a nation. But to be a nation, you kind of need land, don't you? You need that. And so uh, coming out of the nation, uh, out of Egypt, where they were slaves, God delivered them. And he said, I'm going to deliver you into the promised land. So while those people had tasted of slavery, the nation as of yet had never tasted the glory and the freedom and the beauty of being God's nation in that special chosen promised land. And so uh, God brought the nation of Israel into, into that promised land. And then because of sin and a cycle, the cycle of sin and oppression and consequences of their sin, eventually they went into captivity. And so these people coming back, you know, there were, they still weren't completely ruled on their own. There were still uh, people ruling over them. They were just back in the city and, and they were rebuilding the, the crumbles of the walls and they were restoring God's glory to that city through rebuilding uh, that wall. But if you think about it, those people, would it have been really easy for them to kind of look at that and say, no one in the history of our country, of our nation, of our people, no one's ever faced anything like this before. Could they have said that? In some senses, I think they could. I think there's some, there's some unique circumstances that these people, you know, none of, our, none of the generations before went into slavery and then came back and had to figure out how to live. See, it's so much harder today to live than all those other people. It, it's really easy. It's the human plight. It's, it's the, the story of the human heart to want to see What's going on in my life right now, it's so unique that it's harder than everyone else's, and it's never, ever happened before. At the uh, start of the pandemic, when lockdown went in, so March 2020, a cartoon was released. And in that, you see on a front porch a picture of an aged man a dog lying on the floor underneath that swinging porch bench. And on the opposite side, what would appear to be six feet away, is the man's grandson. And the grandfather is sitting there swinging on that, and he's just musing, him, musing to himself. 
And he says, well, back in my day, we didn't hoard toilet paper. We would tear out a page of a phone book and a Sears catalog. That little boy just stared blankly at the grandfather and he goes, what's a phone book? What's a Sears catalog? You know, we could have used about any number of, of illustrations. You know, I, I, I'm certain you heard them from your grandparents and your parents growing up, and you've maybe said it to your children of, well, back in my day, we had to, you know what, walk uphill both ways and tie binder twine to our feet so we could get some traction in the snow. That's one my father-in-law uses all the time. Uh, we can use, you know, all of these different things of saying, well, man, w- what I'm going through is just so unique. And I'll, I'll set the stage for us that the circumstances you, f- you are facing in your life at this time in history, they are unique. They are. Because you're you, and you are unique in God's plan and purposes, for he set you in this time of human history. And you have the challenges that you face in your life. And they are unique. But I want us to share and I want us to see as we walk through this passage today that the principles and the plans of God, they're timeless. They're universal. And while we know that specific instructions were given to the nation of Israel and that they were given to be ministers of the law. And today we're not to be given to the law, but we are ministers of reconciliation and we rejoice in the grace of God. The heart behind that all is the nation of Israel, as they followed God, they followed the law that he gave them. And as we follow God, we follow his grace as he's given us. And today what I want us to see as we look at this passage is I want us to see four principles for living in unique circumstances because things haven't changed all too much. It might look different. The names of people might be different. And we all experience it and we all feel it in different ways. But the God of it all is the same. The transmission of our faith and the precepts of God from generation to generation has always been a challenge. As the timeline of history moves at warp speed now, it seems like we just can't even keep up with how fast things are are changing in our modern world. It's essential for our generation to not only engage our culture and world, but most importantly, point them in love and truth to the God of the Bible, his precepts, and his ways. At the time of Nehemiah's finishing the wall, a generation of God's people that had only known captivity and had never, had only heard and seen of the glory of the Lord through secondhand information, they're coming back from previous generations, have entered down the path of restoration to God's ways and his word. As we're going through here, let's look at these four principles for how we too, just like the nation at this point, what are four principles we can take away from this? Well, let's look in chapter 9 here and let's begin 
in verse 1. We'll read this first paragraph here. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. Now I want to point out, it begins in the 24th day of, of this month. Do you remember what was just going on in chapter 8 back in March when we were talking about this? We had just got done celebrating a revival. In fact, it took us multiple times. I think we spent about three different uh, weeks to get through chapter 8 because there was so much to celebrate. In this, they were recovering the plans of God that were revealed in the law that they had never even seen these things. They hadn't been gathering together. They hadn't been celebrating some of the feast days that God had instituted, one of them being the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Tents, we might describe it. We also had the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets all coming together in, uh, the, in Nehemiah chapter 8. So we're on the heels of revival has already begun. Good stuff is going on in their hearts. And so they celebrated. There was great joy. Do you remember that there was also another emotion that came out in them in chapter 8? And it was one of grief. It was one of sorrow because they recognized the weight of the sin that they each had individually and collectively or as a nation as they had stepped away and they had walked away from the precepts of God. That's what sent them into exile, into captivity in the very first place. And so uh, uh, there was the Day of Atonement. They ce- celebrated that. And we looked at how God brings cleansing to our hearts because he deals with our sin and he's taken it away. And that was even mercil- uh, mercifully and graciously granted for under the law through all of those things. But now we're back here and, and there is still a great stirring going on in the heart of the people. I mean, how could it not? When you saw, saw God working in such an amazing way, and then you're gathering for the Feast of Tabernacles, and it's, it's just wonderful what God is doing. There's going to be more. And it also stands to reason that although we've started to shed the layers of the garbage in which we may have been wearing for years as the nation of Israel in captivity, as time goes on and as we go deeper and draw closer to the Lord. There's always more things to shed off, aren't there? There's more garbage. There's more pain. There's more realization of how we've strayed away from him in our heart of hearts. And that's what we see starting to take place and continuing onward for the nation here. And we see uh, at the end of verse 1 that they were assembled together and they were fasting in sackcloth and with dust on their heads. This is a cultural representation of grief, of mourning. If I have dust on my head, it's probably because I was outside working or gardening or doing something like that. Uh, It's not a symbol of me mourning. If I've got Oreos on each hand, that's probably a symbol of me mourning today. I'm just picking. As a symbol of grief, of mourning, they would rip their clothes. They would, cover, they would put on sackcloth, which is just uh, a very sullen 
looking material and, and they, would, uh, they would physically act out what was going on in their hearts. What was going on here, they would live out for all the world to see. And so there, there's mourning going on here. And then in verse 2, then those of uh, Israelite lineage separated, separated themselves from all foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, which remember they had started, they already had this Bible conference that lasted for days, but they just stood there all day long. Well, they're back at it again. And, and this time and they sat there and they read from the book of the law for one fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord, their God. I know I should have put an announcement on Facebook, but what change of plans, I'm actually going to be preaching for a quarter of the day today, and then we're going to be worshiping the Lord for the other quarter. So I hope you have 12 hours to devote to worship today. Could you imagine that? A whole quarter of the day, just sitting there, read, let, let us hear the word of God, the hunger and the heart for the things of God. That's humbling to me to read that. Uh, and it's also exciting because it shows me what it can look like when I have a hunger for the Lord in all of this. So in this passage, we're walking away uh, and, and we're looking at principles that we see uh, of, you know, how is this helping them walk in this strange time that the previous generations really hadn't walked through it, but yet the truth remained the same through it all. The first thing that I want us to see this morning is that God's calling touches every part of our story. God's calling. That is his desire, his will, his purposes, his plan. God's calling touches every part of our story. In Sunday school, we've been talking about uh, anxiety, and there's a word picture with, the, with anxiety of, of a divided mind. And sometimes it's easy for us in life to start to divide out and say, well, I've got this taken care of, but this, uh, you can have that, Lord. I'll take, I'll take the rest of this. We kind of portion out and divide out uh, aspects of our heart, uh, of our possessions, of our time, all of these different things. We can, we can divide out and we, we apportion it and we, we'll take, uh, we'll give some to God, but there's always, it's nice to have a remnant that we kind of hold on to. And what we're being challenged by in this here, you know, the, the nation, man, they, they had already been to God for a whole lot of cleansing at this point. And you know what? There's more. There's more for them that they needed to continue to seek the Lord at. And, and there's, there's just an encouragement to my heart in that, that, praise the Lord, I had a mountaintop experience last week. I love it. It was precious. Thank you, Lord. But you know what? There's still more in my life that I need to continue to bring to him for him to work it out in my life. And so a couple things that are brought out, and where does this calling touch? Well, we saw in verse 1 that there was conviction and repentance. I mean, conviction, they were, they were mourning. Again, they were recognizing the sin, not only of themselves, but of what had happened, how they got there. There's a very 
corporate reality, meaning recognizing the whole nation, everybody together, everybody had a part to play in that. And that, that's going to come out uh, as we continue to work through the passage. There's another thing in here uh, talking about separation in here. Do you just see that in verse 2? Uh, then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners. Um, they want, part of the, the problem is they went into captivity uh, as, a, as a consequence of their sin, right? So they're in captivity, and guess what the nation of Israel continued to do? Sin. See, from the very get-go, God said, you're my chosen people. I want you to be special. I, I only want you to be married to me. We'll use the marriage illustration because God uses that uh, at multiple times with the nation of, of Israel. He said, I just want you to be devoted wholly and truly to me. But yet the nation, time and time again, this is reflective of all of our hearts as well. But as a nation, they would continue to go off and, and follow after other gods. And God knew this would happen particularly when in their, in their basic relationships, one of the most fundamental relationships of life between a husband and a wife, that when a man would marry a woman who was not following and not going after the God of the Bible, that that man would no longer follow the man of the Bible. He would follow after his wife and follow after those gods. And while that happened time and time again in the nation of Israel that sent them into exile, nothing changed when they went into captivity. They kept intermarrying. And so now that they're coming out of captivity, they're back in the land, the wall's being rebuilt, there's an aspect, and they're having to face the fact and the consequences of their sin of, we kept intermarrying, we kept doing all of these things. And now God's got to deal with us on all of that. And in this, they had to be willing to separate from the foreigners. We could look at this, and, and I don't believe right here in Nehemiah, it's only talking about them having to separate out from, uh, from their, their mixed marriages that were there. But that is, it's a part there, but it's also the different relationships that they were following after. God wanted them to be unique and wholly set apart to them. If you go back to the book of Ezra, at some point, Ezra chapter 9, uh, it's kind of interesting that it falls with Nehemiah chapter 9, but Ezra chapter 9, uh, you see God calling them to this level of righteousness and holy living in their marriage relationships. He specifically calls out. Now, Ezra chapter 9 happened before this, but again, it wasn't completely taken care of. I don't know about you, moms and dads, do you ever feel like you're living in Nehemiah chapter 9, and you're like, we already dealt with this over in Ezra chapter 9. We, we talked about this before. Why haven't they gotten it? Perhaps, in part, it's because we're the same way. God may have dealt with us at one time, and then our heart continues. It's just a, it's just a picture. It's I walk away encouraged as a parent in this passage for uh, to keep on keeping on and pointing in the direction of God's word for our hearts so easily follow after. But that's the very point that we're talking about, that God's calling touches every part of our life, and it's easy to just try to get off track 
and it brings us back to that. Also in this passage, we have them confessing their sins and the, inequ- the iniquities of their fathers. They're not only just talking about what they've done wrong, they're going back and talking about what the generations ahead of them are doing. How many people are familiar with uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14? Keep your hands here. Keep your, uh, keep your place in Nehemiah. Just look over with me at 2 Chronicles chapter 7. So in your Bible, that's to the left. A few pages. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. It's important to draw this out for us because there's so much confusion in passages like this. There's even confusion with it, with what's going on in our country, nationally speaking. Remember, we are on the turf of the nation of Israel where there are special covenant promises at work with God working with them. And to the nation of Israel, there is this promise that we find in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. that says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's a beautiful passage of scripture. Know that we have to look at this and understand this in its primary interpretation, its primary context, that this was promised to the nation of Israel because they are God's covenant people. And he's saying, whenever they recognize their sin, I am here waiting, willing, and ready to, to forgive and, and heal their land, to continue to bless them according to the promises that I've made for them. And so it's, it's important for us to see kind of that, that distinction that is there uh, for it in this passage. But as a nation, it was really important for them to, to recognize where they had been and uh, wh- where they were wrong with all of that. Now, confession is kind of a, a confusing word for us. We use the word confession in, in multiple times. A, a, a confession could be a statement or an acknowledgement of wrongdoing and sin, right? In fact, religious sects today uh, participate in something called confession, right? Where you go and you make statements of, oh, I did this, I did this, and, and you kind of confess with that. We'll, we'll point out we're not going to focus on that completely, uh, but a, a huge misunderstanding of, of uh, what confession is in Scripture with all of that. Uh, alternately, I'll just put this out there, that a confession is also a statement outlining one's religious beliefs. If you go back into church history early on and, you know, after the death, after Christ's life, and uh, we have the different confessions of, have you heard of the confessions of Augustine and people come out? In fact, I think if you listen to, to Caleb, probably, I don't know how many years ago, maybe 10 years ago at this point, uh, I think the Newsboys had a song. Uh, it was kind of basically a modern day confession. We believe in God the Son. We believe in God the Father. We believe in the Holy Spirit. That's simply a confession. It's a statement of belief. It's a, a creed of sorts. And so 
uh, alongside, and we actually have both ideas wrapped into, the, into this. Yes, they were admitting the guilt, but then as we go through this passage, what we're going to see more and more of is that they're, they're just pointing out, look at the God that we have. Look at the God that we're following. Look at what you've done. Yes, look at what we've done. Look at what they've done, but look at who you are. Look at what you've done. That is our confession. We confess you, Lord. And that is a, a beautiful uh, picture for us. Uh, uh, when we, we look at our, our sin, just as these people are, as they're recognizing their sin, yes, we see it. We thank God for the, for the forgiveness, the, the freedom, the cleansing that we have through Jesus Christ. But there is a confession, there's a recognizing of just thank you, God, for what you've done, who you've done. Again, the focus always takes us back to Jesus Christ himself. So as God's call, calling is touching every part of their lives there, they're convicted, there's, there's confession, there's, there's worship, they're gathering together. Look at verse 5. They gather together and, uh, and the men, the leaders say, Stand up, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your name, glorious, uh, glorious name, which is exalted above all. Blessing and praise. There was nothing, no part of their lives that God did not want a part of them. And so uh, we see that when we're, we're talking about we're living in unique times, unique circumstances. Yes, they were living in captivity. They, they came back, and they're just figuring this out. They're learning about it. They just, they're learning. They're figuring out, oh, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Trumpets, the, booth, uh, the Feast of, of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. Ah, this is the God who is, and he cares about every part of our lives, and he cares about what we're doing, and he cares about our mistakes and he cares about how we get right with him again. He cares about it all. If you look at the world that we're, we're living in, and, and more and more, we live in a world that has uh, little to, none, to, to no Christian back pressure. You know, we could say, if you think of the nation of Israel, they lived in the land, and before they went into captivity, they, they lived there. And generation to generation, they passed on the ways of God, didn't they? They just lived, and each generation communicated that on. But then they went into captivity, and so much of that was lost. So much of, of what God had told them to do, they couldn't do. They physically couldn't do it, because they weren't even uh, able too, because of their slavery, because of their condition. And so coming in as a blank slate, walking into it, learning and seeing that, no, uh, there are, there's a way things work, and we, and we have to follow God's ways, and it touches everywhere. There's a really big parallel, as, as I mused over this passage this week, about that in our world. There was a time where uh, even for those who were not redeemed, who had not trusted Christ as Savior, there was a, a back pressure, a generalized knowledge of God in this world, in our culture. Could you agree with that? That there was a time where just walking down the street, even if a person had never put their faith and trust in God, there was a general understanding of, well, there is a God, or there's right, and there's wrong, and there's a way that things 
work. That's how this stuff is supposed to go. But just like that generation that went off into captivity and came back and, whoa, this is, I, what is this? We have, we have no context for all of this stuff. We have to learn it all over from scratch. Might I suggest, might I demonstrate and point out that the generations, our youngest generations right here with us, as they grow and, and as we interact right now in this world, we're interacting with people that have, for all intents and purposes, been hanging out in slavery. And as they're coming back, they're like, I don't know anything. What's going on? They don't know the God who is. They don't know that God is righteous, that he is holy, that he is just. They don't know that he is, and in the fact that he is, he cares, and he has something to say about every part of your life. That's why we start with this. That's, that's where I see principles like this coming as, as we see it flushed out. They're coming back from, from captivity. Ah, God cares. You got to know that God cares. There's dangerous doctrines that, that, that uh, work its way through churches in America, churches that believe similarly to what we believe here, that emphasize the grace of God. Yet in those churches, you will hear them say sometimes that God doesn't care about various aspects of our lives or God's not involved in these places and we have to look back and take a stance and, and, and take a picture at the whole of God's word. And you look back at even passages like this. How can you not see God involved and God working and God caring deeply? And that's part of the message and legacy we need to transmit from our lives into the lives of the next generation and into the lives of those who have never known the God who is of the Bible. So number one, God's calling touches every part of our story. Number two, closely related, we've already touched upon it here, God's character must anchor our story. God's character must anchor our story. Now we're, we're into the, this passage a little bit further, beginning in verse uh, five. Let's go down to verse six. Here, uh, and, and notice, and you might see this in your Bible, you might not. Is your text beginning in verse 6, maybe halfway through 5, does it look different in your Bible? Is it formatted different? It depends on what printing you have of your Bible. That difference, and I want to point it out, because at this point, up to this, it was just narrative. It was prose. It was this happened, then this happened, then this happened. At this point in Nehemiah, this is really exclusive to that. Ezra doesn't do this, but Nehemiah does. Nehemiah breaks out. You know what this is? It's poetry. Poetry. All right. Now, we read this and we're like, that ain't no poetry. When we think of poetry, we kind of, most of us have never gone beyond, you know, um, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Right? I mean, that's poetry. Our poetry to our English ears what does poetry have? It has rhyme, and it has meter and rhythm. It's Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. I can tap to that, all right? Hebrew poetry, far more boring to the English ear, but Hebrew poetry is really beautiful because just like anything, poetry, it's a form of art, isn't it? It's a form of art, and it, and it takes time. So think about... Uh, 
a sculpture. Have you ever actually seen like a marble sculpture before? That somebody sat there and they looked at it and it's just like a, a hump, a clump of whatever. And they're going to just chisel away. And think about the time, the dedication, the choices that were made of, all right, I'm going to fashion this beautiful thing right here. It's not just, you know, like a jackhammer and like, oh, I'm done. No, art takes time and it's, it's measured and there's so much uh, thought put into it. I want you to have that in your mind when you read this passage. Oh, all of a sudden this is poetry. This is so important for the heart to get that I'm not just going to tell you about it. I'm going to put time and I'm going to choose the right words. And I'm going to use all of these devices to make my point that much stronger for you. Let us not miss that in this, okay? Because what are we supposed to do with art? We're supposed to just actually stop, take a moment, and look at it, right? Be blessed by it. Enjoy it. Take it all in. Let it, let it do something for us. Well, that's kind of the idea here. Don't just miss it whenever you're reading through your Bible. <sighs> take a breath. Pause. Look. And I think that's important for us to note that these are things we need to get. And God is teaching us about himself. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord. There's no one else like you. You made heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all of their hosts. And all of those heavens are full of people, full of beings that are praising and giving praise to you. Talk about a people who don't know they're coming back out of captivity. All, they saw everybody intermarrying, and they saw everybody worshiping all different gods. Now, let me show you this. The real God, he made all of this, and he made all of that, and he made everything that fills it, and everything that fills it lives to sing his praise. This is foundational. This is part of who God is. God is unique, God also cares for the heart. Look at verse 7. He says, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham and brought him out of, the, uh, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name. And you found his heart. I love that. That's beautiful. You found his heart. That means you cared. You were looking for it. And you notice it. And he says, You found his heart faithful before you. That right there, that's teaching me that God cares for people. He cares for the individual, and he cares what's going on in their heart. Do you see how the uh, people who were so confused and so ravished by misgivings and, and, and not understanding the way things work and not understanding the ways of God, can you see why there was such great repentance and confession and all of this stuff going on? Because as they're taking this in, they're learning like, oh, that's what it is? This is who he is? Wow. This is the God that we need. There's such a call. There's such a movement for us all to evangelism and to just sharing this God with the world who doesn't know these things about God. God is unique. God cares for the heart. At the same time, he is faithful 
and he is righteous. Look at that at the end of verse 8. He says, you have performed your words, for you are righteous. Anything that God said, God gave promises, God cared, God saw, God did, but he fulfilled it. He came through in contrast to what they may have experienced and may have seen in the lives of others. God is faithful. God is righteous. God does. He performs. If you go through here, and I'd encourage you this. We'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up. I'd encourage everybody to spend a little time in this passage. It's an entire chapter that he breaks into poetry for the most, most part. But I want you to go through, and I want you to see, look at the pronouns, and, and it's a lot of you, you, because they're postured before God, and they're praying to God. Now, sometimes they're going to change, and they're going to start talking about they, and occasionally they're going to talk about we or us. But spend some time in this passage, and look at all the things that you has done. You did this, you did this, you did this, you love this, you gave this, you forgave this. It is overwhelming. And as we think about the uniqueness of our situation, the struggles that we face in our homes, in our culture as a society, all of these things, I'll tell you an easy application point that we walk away from is that by and large, the focus of this passage is on the you, you, you. And our hearts all need to shift its focus to the you, to the you, to the you. It's so easy to be overwhelmed of no one has struggled like, like I have, or no, one is, no one's facing what, what I'm going through at the moment. You feel alone. You feel isolated. You feel frustrated. You can feel mad. There's a season for all of that. There's, that's fine. But through that, God brings us back to him. And one of the things that he calls us to, and as, ex, as uh, exemplified by these people, they kept saying, you, you did this. You, you. Would we focus upon God? As, as we're seeing here, would we focus upon God's character? Who is God? Would we focus on that in our lives? And I'll tell you this, it will dramatically, it will radically begin to transform how you walk through the circumstances that, yes, are unique to you, but that are so similar to the plight in the heart of man. I spoke at Northern Grace Youth Camp this summer. I had mentioned before that, you know, you boil down so many things, and I, you really boil down life to this axiom of two things. God has a plan. Number two, I have a choice. God has a plan, and I have a choice with what I'm going to do with that plan. As we've seen this morning, my choice to that plan is to go back to him and see what he's done and to follow him in his plan. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for just uh, the examples that we've seen in this passage. Lord, we can take almost uh, a sense of fellowship and camaraderie with the nation here uh, as, as they faced unique circumstances, as we do too. Lord, and we see, we looked at uh, two ways 
that you, uh, you showed yourself to them and uh, things that we all need to have in our hearts to help us navigate these, these challenging things. And Lord, even, even for the nation of Israel back at this time, at the, as God rebuilt the nation as they were coming out of captivity, it was always with an eye towards the external, that the world would look and see what you were doing in the nation of Israel, and they'd be drawn to your light so that they would come to you. And Father, that's really our heart here this morning for us, is, is we want to see what you're doing, and we want you to be working in our lives so that as you are doing that, your light would shine through us, and others would be drawn to your light in us, and they might, be, they might come first to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, but to a deeper walk with you through the testimony of our lives, Lord. Father, I do pray for my brothers and sisters and the uniqueness that each of them are facing in their circumstances. Lord, uh, we pray for deliverance. We pray for your healing where it needs to be. Father, we pray for your strength, your provision, your sustenance in these circumstances, Lord. Father, we pray for your truth. We pray for you to reign supreme through all of these things. Lord, be glorified. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. stand as you're able and we're going to sing how great thou art. Mm-hmm. 